guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. Hi, beautiful people. This is Melissa, and you are listening to Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast, where we celebrate some of the world's absolute greatest women to ever walk the earth. And we do it while we drink an abundance of alcoholic beverages. If you are new here, welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you found us, and I'm assuming that you must love all things women, wine stories, and laughter, which is pretty much what we're all about on this podcast. So today we're going to be doing a women's history episode. We have two very phenomenal women with absolutely remarkable lives that we will be sharing with you today. And we have a really awesome guest host who has literally been a loyal fan of Mimosa Sisterhood podcast for two years. I met Marina Pierce at a podcast convention, I believe back in 2019. I was tabling there with CJ. We showed up to PodCon in Seattle and had no idea that it was an audio drama podcast convention, but we also just didn't give a fuck, so we plopped out our 10-foot-tall cardboard cutout of a champagne bottle with our logo on it. We slapped down that sparkly, glittery tablecloth. We held up our Julia Child and Yoko Ono cutout faces, and we party rocked for two days straight. It was an absolute blast. And one of the greatest things about that entire weekend was the fact that I got to meet people just like Marina. I got to pitch them my show. I got to have real life conversations with them. I got to give them fun stickers and freebies. And some of those people are still loyal listeners today, so many years after our initial meeting. And it truly warms my absolute heart that so many of you have been sticking it along my side for so long. And many of you, I don't know. And I want to know. I want to know you. So if you are somebody who has been listening to this podcast from day one, reach out. Shoot me a DM on Instagram at Mimosa Sisterhood or send me an email hello at mimosasisterhood.com. I want to hear from you. I want to know you. I want to shoot the shit with you. So say hello. Don't be a stranger. Seriously. In other news, my pod shop is going to be launching this month, I think. (laughs) I'm still waiting on a couple of prototypes to deliver to my house. And I have one last thing I need to build into my website. So if all goes according to plan, I'm hopeful to have the podcast shop open by mid-June. So if you are currently 
part of my email list, you will be the first person to receive a heads up about the official launch date. It has been too long that I've had this podcast without merchandise, so the time has finally come and I cannot wait to release it. So cool. That's my updates in podcast land. And as always, please be sure that you are subscribed to Mimosa Sisterhood on Apple Podcasts and that you follow us on Spotify. And if you haven't yet left us a review on Apple Podcasts, it would mean the absolute world. A five-star rating and a written review go such a long way in helping our podcast gain more visibility, which ultimately helps my business become so much more successful. (laughs) So if you have some time today, I would really, really appreciate it. Super quick, super easy, and the most affordable way to support the show. So that's all for me today. Let's get into the pod. Without further ado, grab your glass of wine, your glass of bubbly, your super stiff cocktail, and uh, get ready to party, baby! Hi! Hello! It's so nice to actually talk to you. (laughs) Yes! So... This is like the craziest thing ever because Marina and I met at PodCon, which was a podcast convention I went to. CJ and I were there. We had a table. We were trying to promote the podcast. I met six trillion thousand people there. (laughs) It was the most insane weekend of my life. And Marina was one of the people that I met. And now, flash forward years later, you're guest hosting on the podcast. Amazing. I'm happy to be one of the six million trillion people that you met that weekend. (laughs) Okay, well, did you and I have a real conversation? We did. So it was it was it was a while ago. So it, the actual details of it are kind of fuzzy because I, so that week I was having just a really tremendously bad week. It was just so bad and I so I live in Seattle where the podcon was. So I know that PodCon was, like, hosted through Hank Green, so, uh-huh. and I have been following Hank Green's work for a really long time, so I saw that he was doing, like, oh, like, local students and people who can't afford tickets can apply mm-hmm. for a scholarship ticket, basically, where you can just uh, put in an application and you might, you may or may not just get free tickets. So the day of, oh, I was having a terrible week, I don't remember why, but I just remember feeling like absolute shit with that week and then um I got an email from Hank Green that was like here are two tickets to PodCon and I was oh my god and I was like shit okay this is today so um I guess I'm going (laughs) and and so I got my ass in the car and um could find nobody who wanted to come with me because I'm a dweeb who just listens to podcasts all day, every day. (laughs) And so so I drove my ass to downtown Seattle and just walked around this podcast convention for like hours. Oh my God. That is so cool that you won a ticket in there though. I did. I did. I won two tickets and I used one of them, but I got two. And then- I remember I walked in and you guys were in like the main convention hall. I walked in and right across from you guys was a massive bulletin board just full of like people yeah. writing random little 
quips. And so I drew a picture of a whale and I stuck it to that bulletin board. And then I saw an enormous cardboard cutout of a champagne bottle. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) and I was like, this looks, this looks pretty fun. (laughs) So I went over. You guys were obviously stressed out. (laughs) But, But we're excited. So I remember I was like, hey, what what do you guys do? And you were like, so we do this podcast about women in history. <laughs> and you I was like, what? great. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no judgment. I was like, I'm I was like, I'm digging, I'm digging the energy here. I like women and history. So this yep. is, so this is, sounds like my cup of tea. You handed me a large stack of um, stickers. I still have many of them. Oh my god, how cool! You yeah. have the original sticker from the original logo. Dude, you OG. I do I wish I could find them? Um, I had a house flood back in December, which like made all of my oh things no. just kind. Of, it's okay. I'm mostly fine. But I've had a I, house flood too, which you may have heard on the podcast at oh some yes. point in time. <laughs> oh yes. Um, but basically that means that I just can't find where anything is because half of my things yeah. are in storage and they're in boxes and stuff. So I know I have them. I just don't know where. <laughs> that is so cool. But I've been a loyal listener since then. That is so crazy. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for sticking along this wild ass ride with me. Like, holy shit, I can't believe I met you <laughs> way the hell back then in person in Seattle yeah. while pitching my show at a podcast convention. And now here we and are. It's guess nuts. what? Guess what? Of all the podcasts that I listened to that week, this is the only one that I've enjoyed enough to continue listening to. So... <laughs> That is just like brings the most ridiculous amount of joy to my heart, my Yay. life. Oh my god, that is so exciting. Um, oh. thank you so much. Well, and thank you. I just love too that I'm now obviously in a situation where my co-host is no longer here. <laughs> she's alive, but I'm, she- glad, I'm glad she's alive. I wondered for a while. I was like, shit. No, she's alive. She's still with us. Good. Um, just not physically on the podcast. But now I get to bring people like you on the show who have like been sticking around with me for years and know the deal and listen to the episodes and can now have the opportunity to tell a story about a woman that you love. Like, Yay! I just think that's so cool. So super amped about it. Well, I'm so happy that I met you. I wish I could have been my normal, cordial, bubbly, nice, friendly <laughs> self. Um, but I was probably having like a midlife panic attack in oh, that moment. It, it's okay. I spent like I spent sixty percent of my life just having a, a, an eternal panic attack. So no judgment. You're fine. <laughs> Perfect. Oh my god. Okay. Well, tell us w- more about you. You live in Seattle. I do I, live in you're Seattle. In school. You. Yes, what's happening? So, you have this cute room that I'm looking at. Like, <laughs> tell us everything. So I am an actor and a singer. I live and I've grown up in Seattle, Washington my entire life. I am a junior in undergrad right now. So I am a baby. I am 20 years old. Um, I'm getting my undergrad degree in um, musical theater performance. Um, I just recently transferred to the school I'm at right now, but I used to be a double major with opera performance. So that's kind of my background is classical singing and musical theater. I was fully raised in a theater family. My mom's an actor. It's just 
that is Love it. the large majority of my life. And I was just, I was telling you just before we started recording that the reason my room is cute behind me right now is because it was the background for a six and a half minute song that I had to film for my final. <laughs> It's so, so cute. I think you should keep it up full time. I love it. I, yeah, I'm not planning on taking it down. So might as well, it, I mean, yeah, it's cute. Why not? So that's what I do. I do a lot of the singing, a lot of the dancing and some acting. And that's, that's what I do. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you are ridiculously talented <laughs> and you. so creative and uh, just so cool. Like, I mean, I know that you think you're a baby at 20 years old, but I can only wish that at 20 years old I was investing my energy and time into positive, productive, (laughs) creative things. However, I was doing the polar opposite of that. So I just pride you in being such a cool, kick-ass 20-year-old. Well, thank you. I don't actually think I'm a baby. I'm just slightly baby enough that I cannot purchase cool wine to drink on this show. So I will give you the entire wine review. It's all yours. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, well, perfect. Then I'm yes. just going to dive into it. So Brilliant. I was prepared in advance that this would be a solo wine review today, and that's totally fine. Um, I have no issue handling all the wine drinking on my own. <laughs> Uh, but I thought it would be a really cool opportunity to tell you and all the listeners about Naked Wines. Have you heard of them? I have not. Okay, so it is like a company that has all wine bottles that are made from independent winemakers. You're supporting like the small wine companies rather than like my typical go-to, which is Trader Joe's, which I'll always love Trader Joe's. I'll always support the TJs. But every now and then it's nice to support our small wine companies. And with that said, today I'm drinking one of my bottles from my new shipment, and it is called Dave Harvey. It is a Columbia Valley Syrah 2019. It has a really cute fish on the front of it. I'm loving it. Oh, it is cute. It's super cute. I'm not very adventurous with, like, my my wines or foods. It's like, I'm the person that when I like something, I'll just keep getting it over and over and over again. I am the same way. Right? I'm, like, I like being in my comfort zone. I don't like trying new things and then hating it, being bummed out, but... And I don't, with that said, I don't normally drink Syrah, and I'm very happy with this red wine tonight. It is so good. And again, I love that I'm drinking wine from a local small winemaker. And normally I just go for Pinot Noirs, which are very sweet. And I'm really liking the fact that this is not nearly as sweet as a Pinot Noir. It has like darker, cherrier flavors to it, not like super sweet cherry, like a mellow cherry. And I'm just stoked off the deal I landed and the fact that I get to support the, the small winemakers. So cheers to that. Che- I, I, I don't have anything to pseudo cheers with you with, but I, I do have a bag of tortilla chips with me. So I will, I, will tor- I will cheers you with a singular tortilla chip. Perfect. Cheers. Cheers. Are you ready to go first? I am ready. Okay, so... Today, I will be covering Maria Eva Perón, also known as Eva Perón or Evita. And she was a very famous actress and the first lady of Argentina 
in the 40s and 50s. Woohoo! And I do think it's important to note that you sent us a DM like 100 years ago and told us to cover her. And I realized that CJ was managing the Instagram at that time. <laughs> and it didn't make its way into the portal. But now you're here and you're doing it. And that's the coolest part. So yeah, I, I do... <laughs> It really has come absolutely full circle. All right. Are we, are we ready to yeah. dive in? Let's okay. do it. So um, Maria Eva Perone, who I will be referring to as Eva for the sake of this presentation, was born on May 7th, 1919 to Juan Duarte and Juana. Okay. I might, I might butcher some of these last names. They are. It happens. Uh, um, Juana Ibarguin, maybe. So her father, Juan, was a... Wealthy rancher from Chivalcoy near um, Junin, where Ava's family resided. But Juan also had already had a separate wife and family in Chivalroy, <laughs> where he lives. So, naturally, her parents were unmarried, and it wasn't uncommon at the time for wealthy men in rural Argentina to have multiple families, of which Ava's family was not his legal family. Her family abandoned Ava, her mother, and her five older siblings when Ava was just simply one year old. Oh, um, God. <laughs> yeah, to stay full-time with his legal wife and family. And when he left, her family was growing up super, super unstable and horribly poverty-stricken. Like, it was terrible. And so her mother moved all of the kids to Las Pampas, um, an area famously known for being just desolate and horribly poverty-stricken. And her mom began to sew to support the kids. And so about five years later, Ava's dad died when she was six years old. And when her family arrived at the church gates of his funeral, it just really, really didn't go over well. Her father's, Ill her father's legitimate wife wouldn't allow his second family to come into the funeral to pay their respects. And since she was the legal wife, um, hers were the wishes that were respected by the yeah. authorities and everyone who came to oversee this funeral. And so this event, as well as the illegitimacy of her birth and her parents' relationship, would haunt and follow even for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Totally. And it, because, like, being an illegitimate child at this time was just, it was really, really, really bad and hard for you to come out of that. And so during Ava's childhood, which was full of just a ton of hardships, like she and all of her sisters had immediately to start working as soon as they could walk, basically, to oh, start man. being able to pay for being alive. So during this time, Ava found her love of acting by participating in school plays and concerts, and she dreamed of being a famous actress her entire childhood. This was solidified in October of 1933, where Ava um, got cast in a large role in her school's play. And her mother highly detested this because she wanted Ava to marry a rich local bachelor, naturally, mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. able to. It's always about the rich local bachelors, it's like, in every story. What the hell? Literally always. Literally always. <laughs> in this in this one, I, I understand the logic because she's yeah. like, well, we are, we are hurting here, kiddo. <laughs> we are hurting here, kiddo. And from personal experience, I can say actors don't make a lot of money. So. Yeah. Oh, man. So. So, you know, but she said, fuck all to that. And um, she said, I want to be an actress anyway. So just one year later in um, 1934, Ava was 15 years old and she fled to Buenos Aires, Argentina, which at the time was known as the Paris of South America. 
it was super affluent and just everybody came there. And the actual way that Ava got to Buenos Aires is still really up for debate. Um, there are two most common assumptions. The first, and this is definitely the more like dramatic and fancy and fun telling of it. So this is the one that most people say is that Ava tra- traveled to Buenos Aires with the tango singer Augustin Magaldi. However, there's no record of Magaldi performing in her hometown in 1934, which he would have had to for her to come with him back to Buenos Aires. And Ava's sisters maintain that Ava traveled to Buenos Aires with their mother. And so how she actually got there is pretty up in the air. No one knows for sure. And since nobody actually knows how she ended up there, doesn't really matter because she did end up there. And... (laughs) And... Ava arrived in Buenos Aires in the year of 1934 and began her new life there. And Ava really big, huge struggled when she first got to Buenos Aires. She had no formal training or education in acting school or otherwise. I mean, she left in the middle of what would have been high school. She left when she was just newly 15 years old. And she had no connections. So she just showed up. And was ready to become a star. Oh, wow. I love <laughs> that for her. Hell yeah. I mean, if Ava Perone had anything, she had a lot of gusto. Love it. And so Buenos Aires was highly overpopulated at the time because of the Great Depression. Everyone wanted to do what Ava did and just come to the Paris of South America where people were going to find success and we're going to be super affluent and we're just going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and so... She big struggled for a solid year, and there is little to no documentation of what she did during that year because it was probably not very exciting. She was living, she was living, living the probably waiting tables like everybody that comes to LA (laughs) to become an actress, and then they're all waitresses for like 10 years. Oh, exactly. Yes. It's so hard. Uh huh. Yep. It's so hard. And so, 15 year old Ava was probably doing exactly that. However, Ava did manage to book her first professional stage debut. No, (laughs) stage debut in the play Mrs. Perez at the Comedias Theater just a year later. Um, It was also at this point that Ava bleached her naturally black hair blonde, which became an iconic staple in her look for the rest of her life. And if you look up any pictures of her, it's all her in these beautifully coiffed 1930s very fancy woman hairstyles with just white blonde hair. So she must have been doing her roots um, very frequently. (laughs) (laughs) And over the next six years, Ava's success as an actress skyrocketed. She had a massive success as a radio actress. So she was mostly basically doing podcasts i mean essentially hell yeah she was doing radio dramas and she became super well known for her radio dramas but i say super well known within that community like she wasn't a national superstar at that point she was still relatively unknown to those outside of the radio drama circle Mm -hmm. um however she then started to have some local appearances in local films and TV B-movies. But throughout all of that, she did manage to become one of the highest paid actresses in the nation at the time, and for the first time in her entire life, had some financial stability. At the age of 16 to... Because I was... 
six years later. So she was like 20 at that time. So nice. Good for her. Good job her. Which explains why she began to become remembered as an actress. And now we get to her introduction to Juan Perón, her future husband. Um, Ava met Juan Perón on January 22nd, 1944, just a week after an earthquake that had killed 10,000 people in Argentina. Whoa. Mm-hmm. She met him at a charity gala to benefit the victims. So at the time, Juan Perón was a high-standing colonel in the Argentinian government, and he was 48 and she was 24, so he was twice her age. Oh, shit. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that night they left the gala together. They said, this is happening. And, <laughs> and that day, Ava dismissed his mistress. She said, oh, she said, bye. <laughs> it's me so now. He had, he had a mistress. And when she showed up, she's like, all right, your work here is done. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Like, obviously the musical is a, like the musical of Vita is a large dramatization of, of this. But the lyric for when this happens is she says, hello and goodbye. I've just unemployed you. So. Oh my God. Okay. So- first of all, that was incredible. <laughs> No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. Oh, my God. It was so good. Um, My voice would be, like, screeching, like, nails on a chalkboard. (laughs) Love it. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed my one-line performance of Avita. (laughs) We should just have you retell the story in full song. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm just going to do a one-woman concert of the entire two-and-a-half-long hour musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber right now. But you'd kill it though. Oh my god, thank you. So Ava just really walked in and she said, Bye bye. You're fired. This uh-huh. is my job now. Yep. And so prior to meeting Juan Perón, Ava had literally not a single interest in politics. She just did not give a shit. Then Juan Perón started to like bring her into his inner circle, basically as a trophy wife figure. He was like, Look at this young hot girl. She's mine. And Ava would sit there and listen to all of these political conversations happen within his immediate circle. And she never argued with them. She just sat there and absorbed every single thing they were saying. And it was, it was just, she sat there like a sponge. And this turns out was a tactic that Juan Perón used because, um, in his exact words, he chose Ava as his pupil to create an essentially, and I quote, a second eye end quote. I as in, like, the pronoun. So, Uh he wanted to create, basically, another him. (laughs) Oh, weird. Politically. Very weird. Juan Perón was a weird man. (laughs) Um, And he was a weird dude. And so, they agreed to essentially have a relationship that would benefit both of their careers. So, it remains up in in the air whether they were actually ever in love with each other, or whether their relationship was truly anything beyond, like, a tactical political relationship. Mm-hmm. And so Ava agreed that it would help Juan with his political career because being in a relationship with an actress would boost his ratings, essentially. And Ava being in a relationship with a high-standing political figure would boost her career. Mm-hmm. So it was very much... Makes sense. Yeah. So it was very much a tactical relationship as opposed to like, I am in love with you. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Soon after it was announced that radio performers like Ava needed to have a union. And so Ava became the face of this union. And Juan Peron really, like, advocated for her to become the face of this union. And so Ava, in her speeches over the radio to her fellow members of the union, spoke in a very ordinary language, like you'd hear any person speak, almost like a podcast, which was really uncommon at the time because people had to put on these personas on the radio. And so this occurred many, many times over the course of her political career and is part of what made her so unique and personable is that she was just sounded like a normal gal over the mm-hmm. radio just talking mm-hmm. to her. By early 1945, Juan Perón started gaining, gaining a lot of significant political power, which led the Argentinian government, who feared what he stood for, to get him arrested. And so six days later, 250,000, so somewhere between 250,000 and 350,000 people gathered in front of Argentinian's government house to demand Juan Perón's release. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So he started to get a following. Yeah. On the day after his release, Juan Perón and Ava married discreetly in a civil ceremony in Ava's hometown on October 18th, 1945, in a church wedding. Wait, what? Yes. And they had a church wedding on December 9th, later that year, back in his hometown. So... If we think about that, the day before his or their wedding was his release date. And to this day, that is celebrated still as a national holiday in Argentina. Just the fact that he got released or. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. Like, um, so it, they essentially call it Freedom Day. And it doesn't re- it does not have much associations with like the what we would think of like as the American like Day of Independence. So it's not the yeah. same thing, but they call it Freedom Day and they still celebrate it to this day. And, like, when they celebrate it, he's the person in remembrance on that day? Yep. Yep. Wild. They're they like, love this dude. They love this dude. However, <laughs> they are going to love Ava more. So, after his release from prison the next year, Juan Perón decided to campaign heavily for the presidency of Argentina, which he won in an absolute landslide. Like, not a single question. And... <laughs> Ava campaigned super, super, super heavily for her husband during this campaign. Using her weekly radio show, she delivered super powerful speeches with heavy populist rhetoric, urging the poor to align themselves with Perón's movement. This winning then made Ava the first lady of Argentina. Oh, so cool. Mm -hmm. And so then the next year, in 1947, Ava embarked on a super well-publicized rainbow tour of Europe. She called it the Rainbow Tour, um, meeting with numerous dignitaries and heads of state. The tour was not billed as a political tour, but as a non-political goodwill tour. So she essentially was doing a charity tour, and every place she went, she brought gifts. Mm-hmm. And Ava was well, well received in Spain, where she had visited the tombs of several Spanish monarchs. And during her visit to Spain, Ava handed out um, like 100 peso notes to many poor children that she met on her journey. Oh, how nice. Yes. It is still up in the air whether that was an actual goodwill thing or a political oh. tactic. But this is what makes her such a complicated figure. Mm-hmm. Ava then visited Rome, France, and then to much less success, 
Switzerland, which was very bad, they threw tomatoes at her. What? Yeah. I hated her so much. We don't really know. Um, <laughs> I, I am, I can make the assumption that she was probably publicized very strange in these um, countries because since she was coming on a goodwill tour, it's possible that she was seen as like, oh, she pities us. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that that was what she was received as in some places. So Got Switzerland it. was really bad. However, she wasn't even allowed into England. No way. Yeah. They said, they said, you can come into the country, but we're not going to treat you as anything special. You're just going to be <laughs> like some other lady just walking on the street of England. Like there aren't going to be any parades. No, like- nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so they really just said, no. And she was, Ava was really offended by this. So <laughs> she said, well, fuck you. I didn't want to go anyway. <laughs> <laughs> And so after this snub, she returns back to Argentina, but that, like, stayed on her, on her resume, basically, is got snubbed by the King of England. Oh, man. So then she comes back. She comes back after this goodwill tour. And now we come upon the chapter of her life, which has dubbed Ava in some parts of the world a saint. Many people think of Ava Perón as a saint because of this. It is the Ava Foundation. So, the Society of Beneficients, a charity group made of 87 society ladies, was responsible for most of the charity works in Buenos Aires. Um, It had been tradition of this society to elect the First Lady of Argentina as president of the charity. Um, But the ladies of the society did not approve of Ava Perón's impoverished background, lack of formal education, and former career as an actress. So the ladies of the society were afraid that Ava would set a bad example for the orphans. Therefore, the society ladies did not extend Ava the invitation to fulfill the position of president of their organization. And Ava said, fuck off. She was so (laughs) mad. She was so, so, so angry when they did that. And so she cut off funding for their organization and started her own she's petty oh she's she's got some fire in her oh she is big petty (laughs) and so ava funneled ten thousand pesos into the ava the ava peronsis foundation just like off the bat to start it off and that was a lot (laughs) um at that time and so It was Ava's work with this foundation that played a large role to her idolization, um, even some lending to considering her as a saint, known as Santa Maria or um, Santa Vita. Both have been frequently used. And Ava set aside many hours of her day to meet with the poor who requested help from her foundation. During these meetings with the poor, um, Ava often kissed the poor and allowed them to kiss her. And Ava was witnessed placing her hands on the wounds of the sick and poor and touching people with leprosy and kissing people with syphilis. And um, although Argentina is in many aspects a secular nation, it is in essence a Catholic country. And so when Ava kissed people with syphilis and touched the leprous, she, and I quote, ceased to be the president's wife and acquired some of the characteristics of saints depicted in Catholicism. Okay, at first I thought you meant like she got kicked out of first lady status. Like, no, oh no, her. no. <laughs> I 
they were like, this woman isn't just a first lady. Yes. She is a saint. Oh my god, that's so cool. Yeah, so that create and to this day, there are many people in Argentina who see her as a saint because of this. You know what's funny is that Princess Diana did similar things right? in when her I was time. reading this, I was like and she mm. did not get called a saint. She did in not. fact, the queen was not pleased mm-hmm. that she was engaging in these kinds of charity matters. She was like, you should be gardening and like doing like women's clubs. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. They fully just said, Ava, go do the thing. And she said, All right. <laughs> And it's kind of funny because in we when we look at her actual work that she did, none of it was motivated through a religious lens. She wasn't like, I am spreading God's name to these people. She was just kind of like, I grew up poor. I don't want these people to grow up poor. Yeah. So it is a complicated thing, though, because was Ava incredibly generous? Yes, she was, but she was not smart about this money. So she never did any bookkeeping or anything, which made the government not like her because they were like, girl, you're literally giving away our entire government's money and you're not keeping track of any of it. And mm-hmm. she was like, I don't care. The people love me. I'm a saint. She Someone was like, should be doing that work. Yeah, she was like, <laughs> I'm a saint. I don't give a shit. And so that is a big, like, question mark in terms of that and there's a lot more information on taxes and shit that i'm not going to get into because that's boring so (laughs) ava Brown has also been credited with gaining the with gaining the right to vote for argentine women while ava did make radio appearances in support of women's suffrage she also published articles in the in like democratic newspaper asking male peronists so there were like followers of Ava and Juan Perón called themselves Peronists and still do to this day. Asking male Peronists to support women's right to vote. Ultimately, the ability to grant women to vote was beyond Ava's political power because she wasn't actually, she didn't have that power. However, in the public ceremony and celebration of the approval of this bill, her husband, President Juan Perón, signed the law into order and then handed the bill directly to Ava, symboli- symbolically making it hers. Cool. So that's a pretty cool thing. And then things start getting bad. <laughs> <laughs> On January 9th, 1950, Ava flat out fainted in public. And three days later, she underwent surgery. What that surgery was, who knows? Although it was reported that she had undergone an append, an appendix, and whoa, I can't say words. An, oh, oh my God. A removal of her appendix. She was, there we go, there we go. Wow, I'm apparently in finals week because I cannot say actual words. Wow, 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 wow. Welcome to my life. I can never say, pronounce anything correctly, ever. So, you're in good company. Thank you. Um... (laughs) So she had not had her appendix removed. She was, in fact, diagnosed with advanced cervical cancer. Um, yes. And so her fainting episodes continued throughout 1951 alongside extreme weakness and severe vaginal bleeding. And by later in 1951, it had become evident that her health was rapidly deteriorating. And also 
her diagnosis was withheld from her by her husband. Her husband did not Whoa. tell her that she had cancer. That is insane. Yeah. And as far as I can find, she never knew. <gasps> oh, She that's never so knew what was wrong with her. That breaks my heart. Right? So she yeah. just knew that, but she knew, she obviously knew that she was very unwell, but she did not know what it was. Only a few months later, Ava secretly underwent a radical hysterectomy in an attempt to eradicate what was, in fact, advanced cervical cancer. But shortly after the surgery, Ava was nominated by her husband to be elected as vice president of Argentina. What? Yeah. So that in the, because keep in mind, Juan Perón is 24 years older than her. So. Oh, yeah. He's about to, he's on his way out. He, he was in his <laughs> late fifties at this time. Oh, okay. So maybe not quite keeling over, yeah. but, but <laughs> he's definitely not like a spring chicken. Yeah. So. And also, he had a lot of support, but he also had a lot of hate. Mm -hmm. So, when you're that high in power, something could happen to you. Oh, yeah. So, because may we remember back to when they first met, and Juan Perón wanted to make Ava his, essentially, his double. Yeah. So, he elected her to become vice president so that if he ever died, she would step just in she on. would just do it she would just do yeah. the thing and so this nomination had massive support from the working class because ava advertised herself to the working class as like one of them she was like i am your voice it was whether or not that was actually true yeah is yeah, up in the air but she had massive massive support from the working class However, Ava declined the nomination for vice president, even though she wanted to do it because she knew that her health was rapidly declining. Well, what was he thinking? I don't like, know. He had to have known that her health was rapidly declining, too. I think that he, I mean, based on what I can assume, I can assume that he didn't want to admit that his wife was dying. Yeah. And so. And that his plan of having a double was yeah, a, not panning out the way he'd hoped. Right, 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 right. And so given her declining the nomination, Juan Perón gave her the official title, the official legal title of spiritual leader of the nation. <laughs> That's amazing. Right? Um, and yes. like on her Wikipedia page, it says Eva Perón, spiritual leader of the nation. No way. Yeah, on her 33rd birthday. Wow, she was 33? Yeah. Oh my god, she got cervical cancer in her 30s and already had gone through all this shit by oh, the yeah. time she was 33? Oh, yeah. That's insane. And, oh boy, this woman's life was weird. <laughs> so, we're getting to the end of her life, actually. So on June 4th, 1952, Ava rode alongside Juan Perón in a parade through Buenos Aires in celebration of his re-election as president. Ava was at this point so absolutely sick that she was not able to stand without support. So underneath her oversized fur coat, and keep in mind, this is June in Buenos Aires, Argentina. It was hot. So, so she, but she was like cold because she was so sick and stuff. Oh no, no! She was wearing an oversized fur coat that was hiding a frame made of plaster and wire that allowed her to stand up. Oh no! Right. 
So she took a triple dose of pain medication before the parade and another two afterward. And so despite the hysterectomy, Ava's cervical cancer had metastasized and returned rapidly. She was the first Argentine to ever undergo chemotherapy. It was a brand new treatment at the time, and she was the first person to ever go through it. But she became emaciated, wearing only seven, weighing only 79 pounds by June of 1952. Oh, wait, did the public know that she was dying? Nope. Like, were they aware that this was happening? Nope. They did not oh, know. No. They had no idea. Because she, they did every single thing within their power to make it seem like she was still healthy. I mean, they yeah. made a frame for her underneath her coat to stand on yeah. this float. Yeah. <sighs> and so... Ava Perone died at 8.25 p.m. on Saturday, July 26, 1952. And immediately after Ava's death, the government suspended all official activities for several days and ordered that all flags be flown out half-stop for 10 days. Businesses across the country were put on halt as movies were stopped in the middle of their running. Wow. And patrons were asked to leave restaurants. Like, everything Damn. shut down. Like, the... Yeah. And the crowd outside of the presidential residence where Ava died became massive and congested the streets for 10 blocks in every single direction. Dang. People worship Ava Perón. Nearly 3 million people attended her funeral in the streets of Buenos Aires. That is so many people. 3 million? I feel like I have... On so many of these episodes, I've talked about quantities of people at funerals, and I don't think I've heard of three million yet. That three seems million like it's is a lot of people. It's a <laughs> yeah. lot, a lot of people. Yeah. And the morning after her death, okay, the morning after her death, while her body was being moved from um, the building where it was, eight people were crushed to death in the throngs of people swarming her body in the streets. Whoa. Yes. That is how many people flooded the streets because of this woman. Damn. Like, the world, or Argentina shut down when she died. And in the following 24 hours, over 2,000 people were treated in city hospitals for injuries sustained in the rush to be near Evita as her body was being transported. And thousands more were were treated on the spot. They're almost, like, treating her like she's, like, a holy spirit. Yes. Like, she's, like, Mary. Uh Uh-huh. There are many, many accounts of her being equated to Mary Magdalene. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, correct. It's nuts. So, okay. This is insanity. This is, (laughs) this is the part of the story that even today, I have known this story for years and I was refreshing on the Wikipedia page today and I read this and every single time I just think, what the actual fuck? And this, (laughs) this is the fun fact that I break out at parties when people ask me to break out a fun fact. So... Shortly after her death, plans for a memorial were started, which traditionally her body is to be on display for the public. However, before the memorial could be completed, also this memorial was set to be larger than the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But before the memorial could be completed, Juan Perón was overthrown in a military coup, exiled, and fled Argentina without being able to secure Ava's body. Then Ava's body disappeared for 16 years. What? 
on. Wait, 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 one second. First of all, why was there a coup? Why did he get thrown out of office? You know, he sprung out of nowhere. Yeah. It, was it a result to her dying? And they're like, all right, well, you got to kick rocks. Kind of, yes, because so much of the support of him and Peronism was based on them working together. Yeah. Because they worshipped, they worshipped Evita. Mm-hmm. And when she died, they were like, it was just mass hysteria. Mass hysteria. Like, people lost their minds when he, when she died. And there, uh, they had mass, like, they had massive, massive support, but they also had a lot of people who did not like what they stood for. And those people started to gain more power after Ava had passed. So it was, it was that military coup who threw him over and exiled him. That's insane. Oh, and yeah. then her body just vanished? It just vanished for 16 years. So where did they find it 16 years later? So, <laughs> I don't actually know how they find it, how they found it, but they found it. So in 1971, Ava's body was found buried in a crypt in Milan, Italy, under the name of Maria Maggi. That doesn't even make sense. They dug up some body and were like, yep, this is her. Apparently. And the reason that they know it was her is because her body was perfectly embalmed. Oh, wow. So they were like, that is, that is Ava Perot. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And so. <laughs> so there's no record of who stole her? No. <laughs> they don't know who stole her, but she was stolen. Um. And a year after they found her, Juan Perón and his third wife, Isabel Perón, secured Ava's corpse and then displayed it next to their dining room table for the next five years. Oh, my God. I feel like we've seen this, like, in old, old times in, like, parts of Russia, like, royalty in Russia. I feel like I saw this on... um, I don't even remember the the movie I was watching, but I feel like this is something people used to do. They'd put their like dead moms oh, in like yes. some type of like chest and have them in the hallway. Oh <laughs> yeah, except she was fully visible. They put her on a stand next to their dining room table for five years. That is so weird. Isn't that crazy? Like, could you imagine being his wife and being like, oh yes. My husband's dead ex-wife sits and watches me eat spaghetti every night. Like... That is so strange. And so... um, But then at the end of those five years, Juan's um, exiling from Argentina had expired, I guess? And so he moved back to Argentina and was elected president a third time. And... What? Yep. And during this time, his wife Isabel had actually successfully been nominated as vice president. So he died in office and she was president and she successfully was able to bury Ava Perón's body in the Duarte family tomb in their family cemetery in Buenos Aires. And the Argentinian government made elaborate measurements to make sure that her tomb was secure. The tomb's marble floor had a trap door that leads to a compartment containing two other coffins. And under that compartment is a second trap door and a second compartment. And that is where her actual coffin is. Insane. Mm-hmm. And that is how her death is almost as interesting as her life. 
That is so crazy. Isn't that so? Nuts? Did she have some big holiday created for her, like the Freedom Day? You know, that's a great question. Well, I don't know if she actually has a holiday, but I do know that her death day, although not a government holiday, like a federal holiday, is widely, widely acknowledged yeah. by the people of Argentina. Um, okay, so random question. Mm-hmm. I could be totally off, but was there a movie featuring Madonna? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, there was. So this is also just me being a musical theater purist. I don't like the movie. Uh-huh. I don't like the movie, but um, it it is it is the musical Evita. Okay. I did not know anything about her life in this amount of detail. I sort of had a clue that she was, that this was going to be the woman that I had once seen depicted as Madonna in a movie. (laughs) But the only reason why I remember that is because my mom is like a huge Madonna fan. Ah, Amazing. And so when that movie came out, I remember we either rented it or went and saw it. And then I'm pretty sure she bought the soundtrack and that Don't Cry For Me Argentina blasted throughout the house for weeks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's famous for a reason. It's a good song. It is. Oh, my God. So cool. I'm so happy that you covered her. I actually don't think we have covered any women from Argentina. So that is really awesome. She's, um, she's a wow. cool lady. And she's, like, such a massive, inf- like, person of Argentina. Like, oh, I think yeah. it's kind of crazy that maybe I've never heard about her very much in my life. Oh, yeah. Like, if uh, truly, if it weren't for me being a, a born and bred musical theater child, I probably wouldn't know about her either. It's so funny because while you were telling your your story there were a couple of things that related to my woman this always it's happens so, it i know happens. and it, they they couldn't be polar opposites they are totally different people of different time periods oh in God. different countries having polar opposite life experiences and there were two things that perfectly tied <laughs> wow i want to hear it so I am covering a woman who had like a trillion names, awesome. but we're going to call her Queen Nanny of the Maroons. Ooh, I don't and know this woman. She's known by Nanny, Queen Nanny, Queen Nanny of the Maroons, all kinds of na- different variations of Nanny. But she's basically considered the mother of all Jamaicans. <gasps> and she was, here's one of the things that related, a spiritual leader. <laughs> Just like how Ava oh was given like that spiritual whatever of the Argentina. Spiritual leader of the nation. Yes. So she was considered a spiritual, cultural, and military leader of former formerly enslaved Africans, which were known as the Windward Maroons. So she has a wild life, and I just want to preface by saying like Everything in this story is just, like, gives me such a heavy heart because I know that I've learned bits and pieces of this history at some point in my upbringing. Right. However, like, relearning it as an adult, it's just, like, it hits much differently. It oh, has such a greater absolutely. impact. So I'm just like, oh, my God. I don't know. I felt really, like, affected by it. 
not in like a bad way, just like, holy shit, I'm going to carry this with me for like a long time. Yeah. And then another thing I want to preface is that most of her early life is largely unknown. (laughs) So we do know a lot of stuff about her in her midlife, but like her upbringing, her childhood, kind of unknown. And there are very contradicting theories as to her childhood, kind of like Ava's. So just people should know that in advance. I'm going to tell her the story about her that I saw pop up the most when I was doing my research. Mm-hmm. It's not 100% factual, so don't come at me in the comments <laughs> like, neat, 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 neat. And then also, there's a lot of legend around her, so important to keep that in mind as well. But I will get into it. <gasps> Yay. So... Nanny was most likely born around 1680 in Ghana, Africa, and she's reported to have belonged to either the Akon or the Ashanti tribes. And her the proper pronunciation of her name while living in Africa was Nanani, which translates to mother, and then her late her name eventually evolved into the pronunciation of nanny while she was living in africa it's believed that her and her four brothers were sold into the transatlantic slave trade by the spanish they were put on a boat shipped to jamaica and were going to be living their life as slaves on plantations so this is already where there's some contradicting theories um some people believe that she was When she arrived in Jamaica, she was a free woman. She was not a captured slave. Some people believe that she was a captured slave and arrived in Jamaica through the slave trade. I don't know how else she would have gotten to Jamaica having not been captured as a slave because this was what was happening during the time. Yeah, that feels like a pretty fair assumption. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm kind of going with the story plot to where she was captured in Africa Mm -hmm. and sent to Jamaica to become a slave. And so they got to Jamaica, her and her brothers were put on plantations, yet they somehow were able to escape. And they took off into the mountains together where they basically founded their own villages on the eastern side of Jamaica, which they ended up calling Nanny Town. <laughs> so it was named after her. Amazing. And with, I know. And within Nanny Town, they formed a community of people that they called the Windward Maroons. So the term maroon is of basically derived from a Spanish word that they kept hearing while they were in Jamaica, which I think was say maroons, something along that line. And it meant to the Spanish, what they were calling them basically translated to runaway slaves. And so like, I think they were hearing the Spanish yelling out, you know, like, say maroons, say maroons or whatever, when slaves were escaping. And so they kind of, like, adopted that same terminology, but called themselves the maroons. So that's where that came from. And they ended up living in, like, high up in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica on the east side and just, like, were starting a new life there. And it turns out that 
lots of people that were brought over to Jamaica as slaves were escaping. Multiple things were happening. They were either getting to plantations and able to escape off plantation property and head into the mountains, just like Nani and her her brothers did, or they would show up on boat and like jump off the boat into the ocean and were able to swim farther enough away that they could just like get away from the Spanish. That's a lot of swimming. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And when they when African people were able to escape, they either joined indigenous groups of people that were from Jamaica and just like joined in on their tribes and became part of their communities in which they would end up marrying the women and reproducing and just like living there now as Jamaicans. Or they would head into the mountains and they would join these like refugee settlements the Maroons. And so in 1655, there was an invasion in which the English captured Jamaica from the Spanish. And as a result, Spain ended up freeing all of the slaves that they had on Jamaica. And when they freed those slaves, those slaves took off into the mountains to join the Windward Maroons, which Nanny was the leader of. And so her group was just like growing and growing and growing. And it eventually got as large as 600 women and children and 300 men. Wow, that's a lot. Yes, it was a lot. So basically, like, the Maroons were known for their bravery, and they were known to be extremely fierce fighters. Their communities had to endure really great difficulties just to survive because, like, keep in mind, they'd already been torn away from their homes. They were shipped off to some random island, which they'd probably never even heard of before. They then had to escape into the forest and then build a new life on foreign land. So, like, shit was not good. And naturally, they had to be extremely resilient fearless and basically like ready to fight at any given time because that's what their life was basically since they'd been pulled from their homes and so nanny had this huge group of maroons and they loved her they thought of her as a practitioner and they basically like in in the in terms of practitioner they thought of her as like somebody that was able to use magic that was based off Western African influence. So she was kind of thought of as this like spiritual, magical woman with power and like not just like power and I can lead an army, but like I can cast like spells. Cast magic? Well, I, I, <laughs> yes. got, I gotta ask, are there specifics? Yes, Ooh. and we will get into that a little bit later. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they thought of her as so much more as just a woman that is, you know, growing this community. They were like, we're bowing down to Queen Nani. Like she is doing things and she's magical. How old was she at this point? Oh my gosh. Do we have like any any ballpark? No, partly because there's no actual record of when she was born. Right. Okay. I'm not totally sure. I have no idea. I would say she's probably in her 20s. 20s or 30s. Okay, great. Because this is still pretty early on. And so 
she was considered a wise woman and in addition to her potentially having magical power she was also loved because she passed on a lot of legends customs and music from west africa into the maroon community so she was really keeping the roots of her people alive and you know even though they'd all been captured and brought to jamaica she was making sure that the community still felt like they're at home yeah. and that they were still practicing the same traditions, the same kind of customs that they were familiar with back in West Africa. So she's very much praised for not allowing those roots to vanish with their move to Jamaica. And so Na- Nanny and her brothers led various communities of the Maroon. So they're as a broad term, they're called the Maroons, but then there were like lots of little communities of them. And she led one and then her brothers led a few others. And they basically raised animals, they hunted, they grew crops, they, and the best part, they raided plantations. So amazing. <laughs> the same, same people that had basically been enslaving them on their land and forcing them to work were now being attacked. Uh, their buildings lit on fire, all of their weapons and food was stolen from them, and even better, they freed all of their slaves. So they made it their mission to not only (laughs) escape from slavery, but to, like, basically go into the jungle and build this army to then go back into town and free all the other people that had been captured as slaves on plantations. And so, amazing. That's so cool. Yes. And this is one thing that Queen Nanny initiated. This was part of her plan. This was part of her strategy. It was what she... It, she had a lot of different strategies of war, and this was, like, the first one that she implemented. And so, around this time, like, well, actually, keep in mind, English. Ha- the English had arrived to Jamaica, and the Maroons are basically, like, running shit. They're dominating the land. They're attacking plantations. They're growing and growing and growing. And the British people are not okay with it. So they basically start planning attacks on the Maroons, which ultimately sparked the Great Maroon War. Well, Queen Nanny was like, not in my house, bitch. So she she waged a guerrilla war against the British so that she could fight for their independence on the land that they were forced into. Oh, my God. Like, you guys fucking made us come here and now you're trying to, like, kill us off? Like, screw you, you Yeah, know? no kidding. Yeah. So she's like, nope, it's not going to go down like that. And so she is like, yeah, let's fight. Let's go to war. The cool thing is that Nanny and the Maroons had a huge advantage over the British because they had been living in these mountains now for a long ass time. And the way that like the the way in which like the island and the mountains were structured was their town, Nanny Town, was like way up high on a mountain, but it was super isolated. You could barely get to it. No one knew really where they were. They were just like up there, but because they were up there so high, they could see everything happening lower. So as the British would try to come up the mountain and advance on them, they could be like, okay, cool, great. We have two hours until they get anywhere near us. We're going to start getting our shit together and get prepared to go to war. And so one of the other strategies that Queen Nanny had was camouflage. The Maroons were just 
absolutely known for nailing camouflage. So she would pretty much set them all up to like cover themselves in dirt and leaves and pretty much train them to stand so stiff and like almost like eliminate breath so like no sound no leaves would like be blowing to breath like nothing like they would almost just be like full-blown statues and it was amazing because they'd get all set up in their little camouflage they'd figure out what spots they were going to be in and they'd look like they were just part of the trees and so as the British would come in Right when they get him into a perfect spot, they would pounce and attack and fuck them up. Oh, good. They deserved <laughs> that. They absolutely deserved that. So she, like, she was considered a superior leader for obviously the things I've already discussed, but a few other legends as well, which are very mm-hmm. interesting. And again, they are legends, so... There's a chance they might not be true, but we're going to believe they're true. But, you know, (laughs) I'm here for a good legend. Right? So the first legend has it that Queen Nanny used to be able to catch bullets with her hand, which is apparently an actual supposed art form in certain parts of Africa. So that I don't don't know. Amazingly impressive and frightens me. Yeah, so I don't know, you know, I'm not, I don't have a video of this, right. so I can't, I can't <laughs> clarify what that looks like or how that worked, but legend has it she could catch bullets with her hands. Another legend has it that at one point in time, she came up on the mountain with this, like, large pot of boiling water, which she, like, placed in a certain spot of this mountain that she knew the British would always walk up when they were trying to invade. And the crazy part is that this pot was boiling water, but there was no fire anywhere in sight. So how, Queen Nanny, are you getting this water to boil? What's going on? This is magic. You're crazy. And so... In addition, story has it that the British soldiers would climb up the mountain, they'd see this pot of water, be like totally intrigued with it, like what the heck is this giant boiling pot of water doing? They'd go look inside of it and somehow they would fall in and die in the boiling water. Oh, so this was a big pot of water. (laughs) Yes. This was a pot of water big enough for a man. Like multiple men. Yes. So not only did she get this pot of water to boil, she somehow got it there. Water is yeah. heavy. <laughs> hmm So, again, legend has it, but that's a story that's very well known about Queen Nanny. Aww. And ultimately, the Maroons were just, like, kicking the British soldiers' butts. Like, the, the amount of Maroons that there were at this point, like, there was no way that the British could beat them. Like, they were fierce. They had been training for war. They were angry. They were coming for vengeance. Like, there was no chance in hell the British were going to win. And they had that massive advancement of, or I'm sorry, that massive advantage of being so accustomed to these mountains that they knew where to go, where to hide, and the British just didn't. So they were going to beat them. And so the British had to start thinking strategically and figure out like, okay, we're never going to win. What are we going to do? So they had to think strategy as well. And they ended up figuring out how to cut off the food supply to the Maroons. I'm not entirely sure what this looks like or how they did it because I couldn't find a lot of info on it. So I don't know if they 
were able, I don't know if they like destroyed their crops somehow or if they were able to like kill off animals that they had been hunting. I'm not 100% sure, but they were successful in cutting off their main source of food and it resulted in like a mass famine. And at one point, Queen Nanny and her people were so starving that they were on the brink of surrender. Like the people were dying. It was not good until third legend has it that Queen Nanny had heard a voice calling to her and it was from her ancestors and they were telling her, do not give up. So she went to bed that night and she woke up the next morning and she found pumpkin seeds in her pocket. So she planted the pumpkin seeds and I think within like a couple of days, the seeds had developed into full-blown pumpkins and they were able to feed her entire community of people. Those are big pumpkins. That's an Wow. Yes. Yep. So the war continued. They didn't give up. They didn't surrender. It went on and on and on until about 1740 when Queen Nanny's brother Quaco made a really wrong move. And he basically signed a treaty with the British that pissed Queen Nanny off. And the treaty stated that... The Maroon people had security and they could have rights to certain parts of land on the island, but only under the condition that they no longer recruit runaway slaves like they had been. And instead, they had to catch runaway slaves for bounty. What? Yes. No. So the Maroons were expected to fight. Oh, in addition, the Maroons were expected to fight for the British in the chance that the French or Spanish would attack. And they were basically signing over an agreement that they would be these like unofficial police forces. Oh, no. That obviously benefited the British. While allowing them to live peacefully without feeling like they're under attack and going to be, like, killed off. So, not a good situation at all. I also read one account that stated another treaty was signed, like, I think a year later, where, which Queen Nanny, like, was the one that organized this treaty that she was able to get the British to sign an agreement that, all of the Maroons would be classified as free human beings and that this happened like an entire century before the actual, it became a constitutional law that abolished slavery. So that's, again, I don't know how factual that is, but it is something that I read in multiple resources. So if that's true, that's amazing that she was able to accomplish that for all of the Maroons in Jamaica. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so it's reported that Queen Nanny freed over 1,000 enslaved people during her lifetime. That's a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> and she's considered a role model for resistance against oppression, and she's honored for preserving African culture and knowledge within the Maroon communities in Jamaica. Sadly, her nanny town was destroyed by the British and it was replaced with a new name, which was called Moortown. But the cool thing is that today, 
right now, there is like a little, they call it like an aisle. I don't know what that means. Like a little piece of land next to where like Nanny Town used to be that is now known as Pumpkin Isle which is intentionally named Pumpkin Isle to pay homage to the legendary uh, iconic story of Queen Nanny with the pumpkin seeds being able to feed all of her people during a famine. So that place exists today. You can go visit it in Jamaica, uh, which is super cool. And sadly, Queen Nanny is assumed to have died like way late in her life, like deep into her 70s. They believe that she... Uh, died of just old age, like she wasn't killed in war, nothing happened, she just casually died as an older woman. And like, even today, she's considered the number one, like, national female heroine of Jamaica. Wow. In fact, in 1976, the government of Jamaica, like, literally declared her a national heroine. And she is also depicted on some of their currency. Amazing. You can see a picture of her on, like, a a bill. But I watched, like, a couple different little, like, small documentary clips about her um, that were created by Jamaican people. And you can literally just see, like, the absolute love that they have for this woman. And I think it's important to note that because even though so much of her story is unknown in terms of her early life and some of it could be legend and there isn't a lot of like written documentation. I mean, we're talking about 1600s, early 1700s. She was potentially an escaped slave. So it's not like there was a lot of documentation going on about her or where she came from. However, today she is still considered like the most influential woman of Jamaica. That's incredible. For and she was a leader <laughs> of like the resistance group. Wow, which is yeah. so crazy to me because again, given the time period, you know, it's not the most common thing for a woman to be running large groups of military fighters. And not only did she do that, but she was like almost considered like a godly spiritual figure where she wasn't just a woman. She was so much more than that to these people. And they believed that she had the spiritual capabilities of keeping them alive, saving them, protecting them. And she really did. She made a massive impact. And unfortunately, it the ball was dropped by her brother who signed that treaty, which I think is such a heartbreaking thing to have to even just think about happening. You know, you are this group of people who were able to escape slavery and you fought and fought and fought to have freedom and independence to just live a happy, healthy life without being constantly attacked. And the only way that you're going to ever get that is if you turn the other side and start capturing the people that are exactly like you that had to go through exactly what you went through that you were able to escape like it's just such an effed up like mousetrap like I just see this like chipmunk rolling in a ball you know and it's it's just like oh it literally just pains me to even think that it would have to come to that and 
it breaks my heart. That is but, very um, heartbreaking. It really is. And I can only and assume that it was equally as heartbreaking to experience. Like, oh, yeah. Like, I'm sure. Yeah. She was unhappy about that. Yeah. Especially having freed over a thousand people yeah. in her lifetime, making it her mission to attack the plantations and you know, kill all of those people that had been enslaving her and her friends and freeing slaves that were on the properties. And every time African people were able to escape slavery, she welcomed them in and said, join us. We have a community. We have family. We have food. We have shelter. And so, like, so much of her life was to fight against oppression. And she was so successful at it. And then it just all kind of flipped over on its face. And it was really just, I don't know. I mean, I guess the alternative would have just been to keep fighting until everybody died. Like, I don't, I don't know really what the alternative was, but somebody else signed that treaty. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) And then it, it was a done deal. So after that happened, she pretty much just lived the rest of her life casually in Jamaica until she passed away but um she's a huge icon in Jamaica and I just think that's so cool I'd never known that there was such a massive female figure in Jamaica and uh just really cool history to learn about and yeah I was just really blown away by her story so that is Queen Nanny and she is the mother of all Jamaicans oh my goodness what a what an incredible woman Thank you for sharing. Thank you for telling me about her. I had never heard of her before. She, it, yeah. she's incredible. Wow. Yeah, and again, I just think about just what people had to go through in their lives. It's right. just freaking insane. So I yeah. couldn't. It humbles me to be honest. It is a humbling experience to look at these kind of stories and then reflect on your own life and realize how much great things you have (laughs) even the worst of moments are not even remotely close to other people's experiences of hardship and so yeah yeah very humbling absolutely and you were spot on there there are several similarities between our two ladies this week right crazy isn't that weird yeah it's so crazy both have been officially dubbed spiritual leaders (laughs) And they both have, like, mystery behind, like, their lives, how they got places, when they got places, how they got there, who got them there. Um, Yeah, just all kinds of different little things that that related. So cool. Amazing. Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me. Oh, my God. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. I'm so glad that you're now on the other side of the podcast. You are just listening. It's a a little surreal. (laughs) It's a little crazy. I've listened to every single episode. That's so nuts. Well, now you get to listen to yours. How cool Oh, that'll that? be weird. <laughs> well, gosh. Well, I hope that I did. Okay. Well, thank you. You were amazing. You are welcome back anytime. <laughs> well, thank you. I would absolute love to be back. pleasure. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and loved learning about Ava Perone and Queen Nanny. What amazing women, am I right? 
Also, I just want to remind you guys, we have a podcast phone number and I would really love for you to call it. Is there somebody in your life that totally blows you away, is such a kick-ass phenomenal woman and deserves a little recognition? You can call our podcast phone number, tell a brief story about who she is and why you're nominating her, and we will include your voicemail clip into one of our future episodes. If you don't have a woman of the week that you'd like to shout out, you can always just call in, say hello, introduce yourself, tell me where you're from, tell me why you love the podcast, maybe what one of your favorite episodes is, and just say what's up. I would love to feature all of my listeners' voicemails on the podcast. I think it's such a great way for me to shout you guys out and show my appreciation for your longtime support. And I also just think it's a cool way that I can start getting to know my audience a little bit better. So if you are interested in calling, the phone number is 562-270-4914. You will only be able to leave a brief voice note through the podcast phone number. But if you have a long ass message that you would like to leave, you can find Mimosa Sisterhood podcast on Facebook and you can send us a voice note through Facebook Messenger that we can download and plug into our episodes. So please call. I'd love to hear your voice, hear your story, hear your woman of the week and feature you on the pod. Thank you guys so much for being here and I'll see you on the other side. Bye.